Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Did you notice the new marching tune intro? That's Victor Hubert's March of the Toys from Babes in Toyland, the 1905 operetta. Clearly, I'm feeling the holiday spirit. I've made my shopping list for Christmas dinner. The fire is on, the decorations are up and on, and today I'm joined by Becky Diamond who is living the dream by combining her love of all things culinary with research and writing about them. She's the author of The Thousand Dollar Dinner, which is a wonderful book about dueling cities, New York and Philadelphia, and dueling chefs, Lorenzo Delmonico and James Parkinson. Think of it as the Gilded Age meets the Iron Chef. She's also the author of Mrs. Goodfellow, the story of America's first cooking school. And it might be too late to buy presents for 2023, but 2024 is around the corner. Becky has released the Gilded Age Cookbook, which is what we're going to be talking about today, and it is an awesome gift any time of the year. If you're a fan of the podcast, of the Gilded Age, of history, or just a foodie, please do check it out, and welcome to the show, Becky. Hi, it's great to be here. Really nice to meet you. Well, it's great to have you for the holiday season because... This book, The Gilded Age Cookbook, is so great on holidays. There's a whole chapter dedicated to holiday cooking as well. And I thought I would ask a cheeky question to start off, which is, what are you cooking for whatever holiday you celebrate? Is it is it anything from your, your cookbook or is it more traditional contemporary fare? Yeah, I, I'm actually not hosting Christmas, but I, so I celebrate Christmas. Um, and so I'm probably not bringing anything from my cookbook to that celebration because my sister-in-law is getting it catered. So I don't really need to do too much, but I, for Thanksgiving, I definitely did make a few of the things and, and over the course of, you know, the holidays, I love to say how they they're stretched out over a time, right. Really between Thanksgiving and into 12th night, which I talk about in my, in my cookbook. So you know, throughout that time, I probably will make a couple of things, just even if it's just for my family. So, you know, definitely, you know, in that respect, I will make some things. Yeah, I think some of them look to me like really exciting showstoppers, to use that great British bake-off term. Um, but some of them look really out there for our more refined 21st century palettes. Um, for me, I was talking to my wife and kids about the, the cookbook 
And they said, so what are the recipes in there that stood out to you? And I said, well, there's one where you hollow out a turnip and you put peas inside of it. And I said, that one sounded pretty terrible. And they agreed too. So I was wondering what's going on with the holidays and Gilded Age cooking? Yeah, well, for one thing, they were a multi-course affair. They were not just like how we think of today. I mean, everyone celebrates a little bit differently, but like a lot of times we just put everything out <laughs> almost buffet style nowadays and people can get what they want. But um, this was a sit down dinner and, you know, you would start out with probably raw oysters. All Gilded Age meals started out with raw oysters on the half shell if it was a fine dinner. And then you would go into soup, usually like a clear soup, and then on to, you know, heavier and heavier courses. So like a fish course would be next. And then into, you know, finally the roast, whether it's a roast turkey, roast goose, they would do sometimes, or even duck, something like that, or beef too, frankly. And and then the vegetables, like you mentioned, the peas and the turnip cups. Um, they might be served alongside some of the roast, but vegetables were often a separate course as well in the Gilded Age. And and some of that is because vegetables were not so available as we think of today because of the fact that, you know, they're seasonal. So when it wasn't spring, summer, fall, when you might see most vegetables, you know, with Christmas and the other winter holidays, typically there isn't much in season. Um, so if you could get that on your table, then you had some money typically. Now the railroads were starting to come into play definitely by the Gilded Age, and that made a big difference in getting goods transported around. But um, a lot of people either had their own hot houses or access to them if they were anyone's of means. So um, there were a lot of vegetables that you see that you know, like why are like celery I mentioned as being like a big deal and people are like, why is that? And because it was difficult to grow and, and, and get on your table. So that's, and, and then eventually they would move, um, you know, through the course of this meal, then they would move into the desserts, of course. And that was also um, a big deal. And especially the plum pudding, that was the highlight of the end of the meal. So, yeah. Which seems very traditionally English actually, or English, Irish, British, and Irish. I mean, that's something that's pretty common on this side of the ocean, but I, that's kind of gone from American, uh, is it? Or I mean, I, fruitcake is still around, I know, but is the plum pudding still a big thing? Yeah, I mean, plum pudding, I remember it vaguely growing up, but mostly like just in a can or something, you know, like you could get like that odd kind of can. So it has fallen out of favor. I'm not sure why. I I always say once chocolate became the dessert of choice, then it just kind of eclipsed everything. Like there's so many other flavors that are amazing paired together, like lemon, lemon and, you know, like, you know, lemon is tart, but with sugar, it creates this really nice sensation. And I mean, lemon desserts are still around, obviously, and popular like lemon meringue, but there was a lot more in the past of those ginger and nutmeg, like all these spices too. And, and that's what's in the plum pudding, all these spices and, and fruit and nuts, you know, um, cause they were considered, you know, that, that those were the sweets, like sweet meats, you know, same with sugar plums. Um, so I'm not sure exactly why it fell out of, out of favor, but I think all those things probably came into play. 
I like the theory that chocolate, you know, tipped it out, but, but also there's some things on there. And I, I really, I really like the idea that you're showing off. If you're at a fine meal, you're showing off what you've got, like whether it be vegetables or whatever's rare and odd. Uh, but there was one thing that stood out to me in your cookbook that was neither rare. It was definitely odd. Um, but to me sounded like the strangest food. And that was the deviled spaghetti. What's up with the devil's spaghetti? Tell me. I know. And and honestly, this is what I have to say about that. You have to try it. It is amazing. It is, it's one of my son's favorites. Like now, so he's home from college. And I will probably make that this week or at some point, even though I'm not hosting my own dinner, you know, I'll make it for him because it's just, it's kind of like macaroni and cheese, frankly. And they would make it in these individual dishes typically. So everyone would get one, but instead of cheese, it has hard boiled eggs that you chop up really fine and mix with milk and flour, you know, make a white sauce. And it just, it's delicious. And the reason they call it deviled, I think is because there's a little cayenne pepper in there. So it gives it a kick. And then they often would put chili sauce or, or even just ketchup on top, believe it or not. Um, but it was served on these fine, you know, dinner menus. And it was also something that could be prepared ahead of time. You know, we think of it now when we make a big meal, um, you know, what can we make ahead of time to make it easier on the day of a big, a big dinner. And that was one thing they could kind of get, you know, especially once the refrigeration was much better in their ice boxes and things. Um, so that was one thing they would make ahead and just have it ready to go. Um, but yeah. But I'm going to share obviously a link to the cookbook uh, so people can buy it. But, uh, but also I think I'll have to put the recipe for deviled, deviled spaghetti up so people can have a look. And if they've got time and, and if they, if they, you know, if they trust you, <laughs> which I'm going to go out there, I'm going to make it. Cause I think my kids probably will eat it, but how, how is the Gilded Age Christmas dinner? or any of the holiday stuff, how is it similar to today? Because I know we've talked a lot about differences, but there does seem to be some similarities too. Yeah, I mean, definitely the having a roast as the highlight of the meal. And like I said, I mean, they did do turkey, but sometimes, and you mentioned the British tradition. It's funny, Christmas especially, and the Gilded Age, you know, overlaps the Victorian era, obviously too, which is kind of, there. There's there's definitely similarities there. But, um, you know, really a lot of the traditions came from the German, uh, Germans that migrated to America. And also, so Prince Albert, Albert first, you know, with Queen Victoria in, in England, and then it just moved over, like the whole, about the Christmas tree, that was a German tradition. And I feel like those two cultures together, then in America, kind of melded into what we think of as Christmas today. And so in addition to Turkey, they would, like I said, sometimes do goose kind of to um, nostalgia for the old British way of doing things or even a roast beef. 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 <laughs> I just watched the Grinch. This <laughs> 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 beast is on my mind. Sorry. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, roast beef would be one too that they would serve. But um, but yeah, that that's one similarity. Um, also, you know, things like cranberries, especially here, in, you know, in America, that's an American food, and that would be on a lot of holiday menus. Some kind of sweet potato dish. It might not necessarily be the casserole that we think of today, 
but it would be like sweet potato croquettes were popular or just regular potato croquettes. Um, and, you know, just also different vegetable side dishes that, you know, some that we would have today, but it might not be the same way that we serve it. Like you said, with the turnips, you know, often people do mashed turnips or something today, but yeah, the turnip cups, that was, it was all about presentation. So I don't know if that's similar or different from today. Cause I mean, I think some people today try to go over the top with, you know, the Christmas dinner, but back then it definitely was all about presentation of the way the food looked. So, yeah. Well, it sounded like there is a pretty gendered workload in who, in who is making the presentation over the top. Women did, a lot of the cooking, it sounds like. Uh, but another tradition, which also kind of seems to have fallen by the wayside a little bit, at least in the United States, is you mentioned the Twelfth Night celebrations, which here in Ireland is still really popular. It's known as uh, Women's Little Christmas. And on the 7th, I think it's the 7th, is it? Or they, they go out uh, to dinner in town in Cork, where I am here, just fills up. And the men stay at home and mind the kids and the women hit the town and uh, and go out to get dinner and drinks. Well, I I'm coming over. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like that. I I would love that idea. That's great. So yeah, well, it does sound like it's writing the balance to a certain extent. At least back then, there was a counterbalance. You do all the work, but then you get a big party afterwards. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Twelfth Night was a huge uh, kind of like that was like the end of that whole season and to um, to usher in the new year. I know it's, you know, almost a week after new year's cause it's typically, you know, it's January 6th, but, um, and, and they really, it really does stem from the Christian, um, you know, three Kings day or the, when the three wise men came, um, you know, to, to Bethlehem. But um, I think people really also used it as a way to say, okay, we're going to bring in the new year and let bygones be bygones. In fact, the very end of their celebrations, they would take down all the greenery, put it into the fireplace, and then, you know, have a wish for the, the new year to start out on a fresh note. And, you know, it was all about friendship and love and peace and all those good things that we should think about when the, the new year comes in. Um, and they were feasting again, you know, feasting on food and playing games. And that 12th night cake was a big part of the celebration. So, yeah. Now tell us about the 12th night cake as you feature it in the book. Yeah. So that was really fun because, and there's a couple of different versions that people would do. Sometimes it would just be one coin was baked into the cake and whoever got that coin was like, the king of the evening, you know, when, when they, when the piece was cut and, and you had that piece, but sometimes they would say they would put a pea, a bean and a clove. So three things inside the cake and whoever got, um, the bean was the king, the pea was the queen. I think I got that right. And then the clove was the jester. So then they would kind of do their own 12th night celebration in, in that, you know they would play like play acting kind of thing so those people could play those parts and then everyone else were the commoners and you know they would have this kind of like little play and it would be fun and, and children could get involved in all of that too and it was just a fun way to um I'm sure you know cutting that cake everyone was like anticipating oh who's gonna get the slice with 
you know, the different pieces in there. So it would be fun. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That that is a that's still a thing over here. Not so much with um, not so much with Christmas cake, but with in Halloween they put a pin, a ring, and uh, I forget what the other things are, which I'm always afraid that I'm going to crunch into, right. you know, some piece of, something that's not supposed to be in there. Um, this, but the social side of the holidays seems different. I mean, maybe this is me looking at it with like all of the, the devices that we have nowadays that we're kind of glued to. I mean, we still meet family, you know, but back then they also had debutante balls at Christmas time. They had fundraisers and philanthropic activities. You know, what was this, what was the social scene like in the grill in the Gilded Age Christmas? Yeah, I mean, I think it just didn't stop, right? I mean, that was the biggest part of their of the Gilded Age and and this this high society, these people of means. It was all about showing off wealth, frankly, and how much wealth they had and, and increasing um their social standing or maintaining it if they were already high you know at the top like the asters or vanderbilt or something but um you know it so it just those activities continued with the balls and and i you know i was saying to another group recently about the debutante balls i can imagine that you know some young men that were you know eligible suitors would be home from say Harvard and Yale and Princeton for the holiday season so having a debutante ball would be important because those young men could could come 
and mothers could say to their daughters, Hey, I know I want you. Cause that was what that was all about. It was all about, you know, women marrying off their daughters to somebody that they thought was the best suitor for them. Um, so those, that didn't stop. And, you know, they was, it was already decorated so nicely for the holidays. So that was part of it. And it was just a different way um, of decorating because they were very much into the flowers and greenery. And because again, that showed you had wealth <laughs> to be able to have access to things, especially out of season, you know, flowers in the wintertime need to be grown in a hothouse too. So, you know, it was all of, of those things. And sometimes, you know, they would go to Newport even in the wintertime. So that was another thing, like that wouldn't necessarily be in New York. They would just continue their celebrating on, you know, wherever they were in Newport and they had these huge ballrooms there. So they were able to continue to do these big dances and balls and cotillions and things. So I think that was all part of it. And, you know, probably being more family around and, and maybe friends they didn't see as much. So that kind of like we do now, you know, with the holidays. So, What about uh, the less wealthy and, you know, frankly, the poor uh, who, I mean, they would have had much more modest accommodation, much more modest dinner tables. What, what was in there? Uh, what was on their table? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's good that you mentioned that because it, there are, they, you're right, they did not have as much. And I have, I always think, or when I've read things, I think they pulled their interests together and maybe several families together would celebrate, especially something like the Christmas tree, even, I mean, even the White House didn't get a Christmas tree till, you know, I think it was the late 1880s. Um, so, you know, it was a big deal to have that in your house. So, you know, I think, Maybe there would be one at like a church or a school or some place, some common place where people could go view it. Um, and and then in terms of the food, you know, again, they probably would pull their interest. But even something like I and I mentioned this in the book, the, the Christmas pudding, the plum pudding was on every table you know, even for the, those who didn't have as much money, I mean, think of a Christmas Carol, the Cratchit family, and she's stirring the Christmas pudding. I mean, they really tried their hardest to at least have the plum pudding on their tables. Um, so, but yeah, it wasn't as much about showing off as, as it was about just being with family and friends, I think. So. One of your things, one of the things in your book that you do well too, is talk about New Year's, which is a, um, obviously there's no, there's no religious connotation. There's not necessarily as much food, but it's a big social event. And you talk about Ward McAllister's uh, New Year's Eve ball, which seems like the place to be when the clock strikes midnight. I mean, what was that like in terms of eating and drinking? Yeah, it, it's so bizarre because they wouldn't have their dinner until like after midnight. I mean, it was so late. And then they would move into like one of the Delmon, because that was at Delmonico's and they would move into, you know, one of the, um, there, there were several rooms and they had one set up just for dinner. There was one decorated like as a, a Japanese tea room. There was another, you know, just for the dancing. So um, I think a lot of the food wasn't really eaten until late, later in the evening and I always joke about this for the women especially I don't know how they eat anything because they were pulled in so tightly to these dresses so 
Um, I mean, I guess they did probably nibble on things, but um, again, it was food was there and it was important, but it was really showy more so than anything. And it was like, it was a requisite thing to have just because you, you were showing off what you could provide to people. Well, I guess in that sense, not not much has changed. As you say, we we try and impress people when when they visit on the holidays with food and with drink and with, you know, storytelling and all of that. So maybe not a lot has changed. What what other recipes in the book surprised you about the Gilded Age? Well, definitely. That's why I had to include that deviled spaghetti and the peas and turnip cups, because those are I mean, you can go through so many cookbooks and you see them like just over and over but another one too was the turkey and the the recipe that i included anyway because it's basted with tomatoes with canned tomatoes and so this is the other thing that the gilded age i always have to mention it was a time of innovation and technology you know bottom line that was the one of the most important things that's i was built by the railroads and all the technologies that you know that made people rich um and, you know, we take for granted canned goods today, but they really, it was, this was the time when they were starting to become more mainstream. And so for a woman, so they embrace these technologies anytime it could make their life easier and you could get tomatoes, you know, not only in the summer. So I just thought it was really unusual. That's what I made for Christmas last year, actually, was the, the turkey with basted with the tomatoes. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it helps tenderize it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an unusual <laughs> presentation for sure. Um, and then they had forced meat meatballs with it made out of chicken. Um, so, you know, it was just that, that to me was a, an unusual kind of, and if you just look back through a lot of old cookbooks like Fanny Farmer and such, just the ways that they pre prepare turkey are so different than we, you know, now we just, it's, it's roasted. <laughs> You might brine it like everyone has kind of their method, but they were different. Like they would actually one recipe said to coat it in sour cream and just really unusual things. So I think that's to me the biggest difference in, in you know, which stood out to me is some of the ways that they would put foods together, you know, in, in a recipe and present them. I love that you're testing this out, too. I mean, it you did say that you did it one year. I guess you're not doing it every year. The tomato and the, it's like a tomato brine almost, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when I did my Thanksgiving turkey this year, I have to admit I did brine it. Um, but you also have to think, well, our modern day palates, like when we're serving that many people and they might, I, I feel like today with the holidays, especially like every family has like, there these dishes have to be on the table and if you go if you divert from the norm they throws people off too much so well that's a recipe that's a recipe for a fight isn't it it's just kind of like well i don't want to divert too much from the norm you know every year but um yeah so well it's um it's interesting that you you mentioned the cookbooks as your source material um where did you where did you find the cookbooks i mean obviously there's some famous ones but presumably there's some obscure ones as well and some interesting sources that you found along the way that inspired the cookbook. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have to give a plug for Google Books and all of this because 
Google Books, you know, once a book's out of copyright, it can be scanned. So 100 years. And Google keeps doing this. You know, I know from my job at Rutgers, we're, we're involved in things, you know, scanning because we have a lot of archival material. And um, so you can get a lot of great information that way, like either cookbooks or or magazines, like cooking magazines or just women's magazines, like Gertie's Ladies Book, Good Housekeeping, those things. Um, also newspapers.com and other newspaper sites, you know, like I have access to some of these, um, the old New York Times, like that's just a really good way. Like they had recipes in there too. and you know, so all these sources together were really helpful. And also to, you know, to kind of say, well, I see it in one place, but I knew I want to make sure that that's just not an anomaly, you know, like I like to, to say any good researcher needs to do that. So that's why you can, you can kind of test the sources against each other. Um, so all of those are really helpful and, and just old manuscript cookbooks that I've had access to over the years. Um, those are really helpful. So um, there's one place especially, and I we took photographs there for the book. It's called the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion in Philadelphia, and it's a fully restored Victorian mansion. And I've had a relationship with them for about 15 years now. Like I, I help them with different things. And um, they have in their collection a manuscript diary slash cookbook from Anna Maxwell, who was the woman who lived there. And I've just poured over that. And there's, cause you know, it's all, you know, these were recipes that they used. She wrote down um, some of them. I think she might've clipped herself from newspapers and magazines. So it's just really, I love those manuscript cookbooks. They're fabulous. What about any uh, regional deviation or, you know, differences that are there, like whether it's in the the cookbooks are in the in what's being cooked, but I mean, your source base because you've got all of these newspapers and books at your disposal. Did you find any differences between, say, the Midwest and the South and the the Far West? Say, yeah, I mean, there were a few, especially if you go out to even like California. They even had um, their version of the four hundred. So you know, the four hundred here was the. Um, Mrs. Astor and Ward McAllister's, you know, the 400 people that were on their list, that, that those are the only ones that could be invited to anything of significance. But in California, they had a similar, I found articles, a similar list. I think it was out in Oakland, actually. Um, so something like that, it was just kind of interesting to see that, that it wasn't just New York and, you know, Philadelphia and Boston that had these kind of, you know, balls and dinners and, and such um but in terms of the food I mean mostly like you see things maybe in the south that are a little bit different um presentations but the thing is with with newspapers too just like today it's almost like they would take things that ran like now we see it runs in the AP and then it runs in every newspaper throughout the country it was the same kind of thing where you would see newspapers in the Midwest and then the same exact article ran, you know, it was from the New York papers or whatever. Um, so there wasn't a huge amount of deviation. It's just more in their activities, what they were doing sometimes. So, yeah. And the, uh, one of the things that w I, I learned was that the decorations in some cases were edible. 
Is that right? You know, like yes. I know we talked uh, last year with a couple of historians about uh, Christmas and the, the history of Christmas and um, the Christmas tree being edible, which seems kind of dangerous as well. Putting, you know, fats and candles next to each other seems like a, I'm saying recipe a lot, but it's obviously on my mind, a recipe for like a fire. Um, what, what else about the decorations were edible? Yeah, I mean, they would just put things on the tree, um, like fruits. They had these little cornucopias that they would put nuts and little um, candies in there. Um, a lot of the decorations were edible, you know, maybe even some popcorn strings and cranberries. And, um, you know, we have so many fabricated ornaments today, but they just didn't have as much that was manufactured that way. And electric lights didn't become, you know, viable till definitely like really late in the 19th century, you know, to even include on a tree. So um, I know that putting the candles on the tree just makes you so nervous. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, even things like sugar plums, they were edible and you, you know, you would eat them, but you could also hang them up, you know, somewhere as a decoration, whether on the tree or just hang somewhere in your house just to make it festive. So yeah, those were another thing. Well, I wonder what advice would you give? I mean, there's say the listeners that are out there that are, thinking about recreating a Gilded Age menu. It sounds like you do this quite a bit. And obviously you've got, you know, you've got a number of books that deal with um, cooking in the 19th and early 20th century. What's your advice to people that want to recreate some of these things? Because as you point out, some of the ingredients are very different just naturally because they're not made the same way anymore. So how can you get back to that Gilded Age taste? I mean, if, is it possible? And if so, how do we do it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it ever will truly be possible to really authentically recreate from scratch a meal from the Gilded Age. Because, and one thing I always have to tell people to be mindful of is the vegetables and fruits would have tasted different then, and even the meats, because now everything is just so homogenized to our palates, you know, like so that we can transport goods for a really far distance, so we can produce you know, hundreds, millions, however many eggs a year we need to, and, you know, throughout the world. And, um, but, you know, we can do our best. I, I would recommend if you can to try to get, you know, organic heirloom kinds of, you know, especially tomatoes or something like that. Um, Cause you can get access to some of those. Um, but just also every single recipe in this book, I have tested and um, made sure that they are recreatable with the ingredients that I, that I list because, you know, something like eggs, um, were much smaller then. So if a recipe from the 19th century says 10 eggs, we, we don't need 10 eggs now. So I've gone through all of that due diligence to make sure that the recipes are, are will work. Um, and they're also very accessible. They're not, really difficult to make. I mean, some are more than others. Like I have a lamb roast. There is a recipe for rabbit that my friend, um, chef Adam Diltz, who has a wood restaurant in Philadelphia, he, he donated that, <laughs> gave me that for the book. Um, so, you know, some of those are a little more challenging, but for the most part, just, just do your best and follow the directions. And, you know, really they are all easy enough to make I feel like 
they are pretty straightforward. It is a very accessible book. And I think it is exciting that you can get closer, if not all the way there with uh, with the menus. Do you do you have a project that's coming up that you wanted to talk about? I mean, what's next in the pipeline? You've written a number of things already now about cooking in the Gilded Age. You've you've collaborated with some chefs. What's next up on the docket? Sure. Um, yeah, I, there's two projects that I either one or both I hope to put forward. And one is um, Victorian slash Gilded Age holiday foods, meaning, you know, like cookies, cakes. Um, it started out just cookies and might, you know, evolve into more desserts. But just it was really interesting that that was the time frame that that cookies became more popular. And, you know, given as almost like a gift or you would bring them to somebody's house and, and things. So I hope to put, you know, write a book about that. And then the other one is afternoon tea. And when I say that, I mean, and I, I found this out when doing the research for the Gilded Age cookbook that in the late 1800s, there were two women that started this afternoon tea room in New York. And it was based on those that were in France. And it was really a way, um, so women were shopping in New York, you know, in that whole shopping district and they didn't go home for for lunch or for tea. So they, they were out and they wanted to get a bite. And before this, women weren't really allowed to be out in public eating a meal alone. They had to be accompanied by, by a man. So this was, there was a few things. It was a place for women to go. It was women owned business, which I think is just amazing. And it just it took off like other women started doing the same thing. And so I want to write about that aspect. It was during the suffrage movement. And and then also those recipes, what did they serve in these afternoon tea places? Cause it was, you know, you could get like a, a sweet, like waffles were really popular actually. And um, maybe a biscuit or something, but they also, you could get lunch. And um, frankly, it, it helped <laughs> put, after having hosting an afternoon tea in your house it kind of put that out of business in a way <laughs> because then people were like you know going patronizing these places downtown in new york where they could really well actually it was more midtown but you know where they could have a bite after shopping so well that sounds fascinating really exciting and it sounds like it's got a a, a big social change to it the story of you know again food shaping our our social situations and uh and even the politics it sounds like it obviously has a political even not necessarily politics as we think about it but the power of women rather you know the po the politics of gender right exactly and it was also the temperance movement was really big so that was another so that that's why those types of places were becoming more popular and but so there's a lot of different angles that I want to talk about with that and, and include the recipes as well for sure. So, well, uh, Becky, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. I think everyone should check out this cookbook, and if you can, I think the deviled spaghetti is definitely top of my <laughs> list. Is something I'm going to try, and I'm sure that's one that uh, will will stick out to other people. Thanks for joining us. No, well, thanks for having me. And yes, please let me know when you try it. I want to hear. And anyone else, I. I I love to hear feedback from, you know, what you think of the different things and if they're really that different than other foods that we have today. So. Well, I'll send you a picture of, uh, you know, my, my reaction to eating, eating it. But <laughs> thanks again. It's been so great having you. And this really sets the scene, I think, for the holidays.
Thank you very much. And, and happy holidays to you and your family and everyone else out there. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.